disturbing text, right? I mean, just when you think you've domesticated Jesus, he does something that just messes the whole thing up. The truth is, I don't think we should be telling the world Jesus is the answer. I think we should be telling the world Jesus is the question. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with the fact that he weaves himself into the human condition? And there's all kinds of questions that emerge as a result of that. I had some cool prayers answered this last week that I, I love getting answered prayer. <laughs> I love to see something that's one way that's not right or not just or not beautiful and to stir up our hearts and to call upon God and to see it adjusted. Those are the best stories. And yet I've had, and I've had lots of those kinds of stories. I'm sure many of you have as well. But then you have times when you cry out and you pray and nothing seems to change. In fact, it just gets worse. What I've discovered as a uh, pastor in America for the last 40 years is that Americans like the good stories. We don't like the stories that don't work out quite as well. In fact, we can build whole communities with the idea that if we just fight a little harder, speak a little more strongly, have a little more faith, all can be exactly as we would hope that to be. But the fact is that isn't true. Just read the Psalms. Sometimes things work out, sometimes they don't. And we're in a human world where God doesn't have to make everything work in this lifetime. He has eternity to work things out. And for whatever reason, sometimes we don't get what we ask for. But what we do get, he's always present with us. He's present with us when we win. He's present with us when it looks like we lose. And, you know, I would encourage you to be less American and more Christian. I was just chatting with a fella the other day, and he was talking about going to Jerusalem. And he's going, they're talking about the different places that you go as the story unfolds and you're there in the real spaces where those things happened. And he was talking about how when they go into the area where Jesus was accused and condemned to die and thorns put on his head and beat on his head. And as they're sitting there in that very tense, terse place, American Christians love to say, yeah, but he rose from the dead. They don't want to sit there in the anguish of the fact that he was beaten on his head, slapped on his face, and spat upon. They don't want to sit there in the horror and the scandal of that. They want to move quickly. Because we as American Christians, and don't misunderstand me, I love America, but we, if we're not careful, will bring our philosophy of positivism to let it predominate our faith and only think that God is present when all things, when we're always winning. And we miss the fact that God is present when we're losing. And in the midst of heartache and brokenness, he's right there with us. I find it astounding, and by the way, this isn't my sermon. I find it astounding in Matthew 25 when, when Jesus is talking about the great day of judgment and he's talking to people who are standing in front of him and don't really get why they're there. They're sheep and they're goats. And he's explaining to them. And he's saying, the reason those of you that are entering into the kingdom is because when I was sick, you took care of me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. 
And then he says, contrarywise to those that aren't entering into his kingdom, that when I was sick, you didn't visit me or didn't take care of me. When I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. When I was in prison, you did not visit me. When I was naked, you did not clothe me. And they both ask, when do we ever do that? And he said, as much as you did this to folks around you, the neighbors around you, the people around you, you've done it to me. But here's what's so astounding to me, is that Jesus claims to be the very people that we think if Jesus was with them, they wouldn't be in those conditions. If Jesus was really with the poor, they wouldn't be. If Jesus was really with the sick, they would be healed. If Jesus was really with the person in prison, they wouldn't be in prison. If Jesus was really there with the person who was naked, they would be clothed. And yet Jesus aligns himself with the very ones we think God's not with. Obviously, he's not with them. They're not blessed. So, please de-Americanize your faith. For the love of God, look at those around you. When you go by and somebody's asking for money, on the side of the road that you know he's going to go get a beer with, see the face of Jesus. Recognize they're not the ones that are cast away. They're the ones Christ is most with. Say, what do I do with that? I have no idea. This is the problem. Jesus didn't come to make everything wonderful. He came to ruin your life. You think everything's neat and tidy and perfect, and he's coming to say, no, it's not quite neat and tidy and perfect. In fact, engage with the world around you. But that's messy, exactly. All right, this month we're teaching through the Apostles' Creed, and we left off on the longest section of the creed. It's devoted to Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Here's what it says. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, an actual person in time. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated now, at this moment, at the right hand of the Father. And the story's not over. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. So the creed is the start of a story and the continuation of a story that is not yet finished. This section begins with Jesus' relation to the Father, as we talked about last week, or about his divinity. And the, the section ends in, with his relation to humanity. It speaks of Jesus' humanness. The scandalous claim of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully human. We call it the incarnation, God enfleshed. In Philippians 2, it gives it to us in a nutshell. Paul says, your attitude to the Christians, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus, Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, in other words, he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In other words, God became human. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death 
on a cross, which would have been a horrible thing, like the electric chair or something in our idea. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Remember that that term Lord was only seen to be assigned to God and to the glory of God the Father. The Christian claim echoed in this creed is that Jesus Christ pre-existed before Bethlehem. And that after coming here and going through his passion, he returned to the place that he had in God before he came to the earth. Plus, when he returned back to his previous status, he stayed fully human and fully divine. Theologically, this means that human beings have a place in the realm of eternity. (laughs) Ephesians 2 says it this way, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come, which would be now, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What it's saying is that the reason God, we can look at each other and say grace and peace is because Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God and in the mind of God, you're sitting there. Touchdown! My spirit's readying for this. This season. (laughs) This is crazy. Humans are welcome in the most holy place. Jesus, the God-human, secured this for us. We get to be in the same room with the triune God, welcomed. God becoming human was critical to the very notion of what we think of as salvation. Connection to divinity and humanity is what Jesus made possible so that humanity could share in divinity. Jesus, divinity becomes humanity so that humanity can participate in divinity. That's what salvation is. It's not us being goody two-shoes or us believing in certain things. It's God invading the human life. (laughs) Second Peter says it this way, he has given us great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine the divine nature. Listen, family, you, your family, your friends, anyone around you, the beautiful thing about Christianity is the fact we get to participate in something beyond us. This is about God continuing to, in a way, incarnate, engage, wrap himself into the humanity that we so oftentimes are so limited by. And it's such an audacious claim that we can participate in the divine nature. It turns out that Christianity is not like other religions in the sense that we are humans trying to please or trying to obey a god or the gods. Christianity is God coming to humanity. Obedience for us is the result of empowerment, not human effort. The result of a commingling of the divine and the human, not the human trying to imitate the divine. 
This is why texts like Hebrews 13 says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good so that you can do his will and that he may work in us what is pleasing in him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What's he saying? Christianity isn't about you being a good guy or good girl. Christianity is about you being open to a God who will equip you and work in you so that you have something more going on than you. Philippians 1 says the same thing. Being confident of this, Paul writes, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion till the day of Christ. What we're being called to is a project with God. (laughs) Ephesians, I'm going to shout myself down. I'm preaching so good right now. (laughs) Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship. See, this is why we come and gather, and sing, and come to the table. We're not trying to be religious. We're trying to open ourselves to a God who performs stuff in us. We're trying to open ourselves to a God who we are his workmanship, that somehow we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you're not doing good works, it's not that you're a bad person. Well, you are a bad person. I mean, all of us are bad people right? In ourselves, in our own efforts. But it's, if, if you're being bad, it's not because that's the only, it's because you haven't found the spout where the help comes out. You haven't found the place where you experience the grace that causes you to want to do things you didn't want to do. If you're living a life that's low and bound up, it's not that you have to fix yourself. And it's not that you have to make a commitment to get fixed. It's you just have to keep coming to the one who can do something in you. That's why the table is open. Keep coming back. If you're a total ridiculous person who can't seem to get your life together and you're in addictions or whatever you're in, keep coming to the table. Why? Because this isn't about you. This is about you just coming and saying yes. And over time, our hope is that grace finds place and transforms you. Christianity isn't just a human thing. It's supernatural. (laughs) Romans 11, I love the way it says it here. Paul is writing and he says, listen, it's from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. I'll never forget as a kid, I don't know how it got in my head. I thought it was, I thought Christianity was from me, through me, for God. And I would come up to the altar and I'd want to just commit and sort of as a little Pentecostal kid, shake myself to commit, you know, and just, I'm from me, through me, for God. I've got to do all this stuff that's righteous and religious and, because I've got, and not understanding it was never about me. It's not supposed to come from me and through me for God. This whole thing, I should wake up and think, you should wake up and think, what's coming from him today? Because if you ever find out what's coming from him, grace, peace, strength, and spirit, then all of a sudden you find yourself doing things through him, back to him, to God be the glory, not you. Mr. Committed Person. You know who tends to shine in the church? Marine quality people. You know, they say things like, 
I'm not supposed to do that. I'll never do it the rest of my life. And they don't. And they, they're like marine sergeants or something. You know, they just, total control. You just got to do what's right. I'm the kind of kid when I grew up, I said, I'll never, I'll, I'm not going to eat pies again. <laughs> and I tell you what, by the time I got home from church, I was eating a pie. And then, you know, I, and, I, it just, it's just I, and everything I committed to just seemed like it made it worse. The commitment to it made it in my mind, which made me do it more. And I honestly got to the point where I thought, I'll never, I'll never going to make this. I'll never forget the Spirit speaking in my heart because I said, I can't do this. And I felt like the Spirit said to me, what made you think you can do this? <laughs> Apart from me, you can do nothing. So why are you surprised by nothing? I remember reading Brother Lawrence and the famous book written in the 17th century about him called uh, In His Presence. And they asked Brother Lawrence, who was a monk, he worked in the kitchens of a monastery. And they asked him because he had such a pervading kind of beautiful spirituality and he had became a, a legend in the way. They said, what do you do when you fail? What do you do when you sin, Brother Lawrence? He always said, I always tell God, this is the best that I can do. And if you don't help me, it's only going to get worse from here. <laughs> I love that. Brother Lawrence is my friend. So Paul says, from him, through him, to him are all things. It's not from you. To God be the glory, not you. Therefore, he says, because everything comes from him and through him and back to him, Here's your deal. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to simply offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Just offer yourself. That's what God's after. This is your spiritual act of worship. Christianity is not really your responsibility. It's simply putting yourself in a place where you can respond to his ability. Christianity isn't a human thing. It's our humanity getting infused with the divine. We become anointed. Uh, existentially, we experience this upon presence of the Spirit. The name Christ literally means the anointed one. When we live out our lives under the influence of the Spirit, which is just a matter of crying out for help, the New Testament says we're in Christ. We're in Christ. Second Corinthians says it this way, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person's a new creature feature. The old has gone. The new has come. If you're tired of the old and want some new, don't commit to being different. Commit to the one who makes you different. Oh, man, this is such, this is like, I'm buying this CD. If there, we don't sell CDs, but I'd buy it. All right. Don't you love this stuff? This is like, that's really good stuff right there. That's like the Bible. <laughs> All right, let me get less cool and less anointed uh, and back up for a couple of minutes <laughs> and give you the backstory on why the creed was written in the way that it was. Now, this is not nearly as encouraging and may seem completely unimportant, and it, but it does have bearing on us. So please hold on while I blather just a little bit, and I'll attempt to try to tie it to why it matters to us. So pretend I'm interesting for just a minute. 
Uh, everyone say Gnosticism. Okay, uh, it's not a nasal infection, uh, it, but, but it is an infection of the soul. Remember Jesus' question to the disciples. It's a watershed moment in the Gospels. From that moment, things change. Instead of talking about the kingdom, he starts talking about his passion. But he asks them, who do you say I am? This question about Jesus, who is Jesus, becomes the prominent question for the first hundred years of the church. They're trying to figure out who Jesus is. In Matthew 16 is where it happens. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. Some say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He starts he's saying that you're, pl- you're more than human here, is what he's signifying here. Uh, Then Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this, understanding who I am, was not revealed to you by human beings, but by my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, for years, the Latin Christian said that Peter was the first leader, the first pope, and that the church was built on him. But even uh, Pope Benedict recently, before he was pope, acknowledged the fact that it's not talking about Peter. He's talking about the revelation, the rock of revelation, was who is Jesus? Once you see who Jesus is, that's how God builds his church. And the gates of hell cannot overcome it, he says. This who is Jesus was absolutely central to the early church's theological work. It took 500 years to address it fully. They knew he was a prophet, but they knew he was more than that, as I was sharing with you last week. He did these God things, more than human things, controlling creation, calmed storms, walked on water, changed the Torah, right? (laughs) Then the resurrection occurred. Just read the reports about Jesus walking around post-resurrection. He was seen to be God. Thomas nails it. He says, my Lord and my God when he runs into the resurrected Christ. They couldn't deny it, but the problem was, how? How could this be? I mean, how could the human be also God? It was new theological ground. How did they explain it? They were Jews, monotheistic. The Shema, which was the Jewish morning creed, it was like their apostles' creed, went, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There are no gods. How can Jesus be God and the Father be God? How can it be so? So they tried to figure out how to even talk about Jesus. To see him as God, which they did, but it precipitated mystery and it precipitated scandal. But they saw it as true. And they wrestled with it. You can catch a glimpse of the wrestle and the tension here in Peter's writing in 2 Peter 1. He says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's not really trying to explain why it's this way. He's just saying, it's this way. 
That title, Lord, which they use freely for the Lord Jesus Christ, was only used, as I just said, for God in Jewish religious parlance. That's how they talked about God. They scrambled to try to explain how what they knew was true, how it even could be true. I know I'm crying out too. This caused a huge cognitive dissonance in their mind. The cognitive dissonance, uh, psychologists explain, it's like, you know, for instance, God forbid you had an abusive father. The cognitive dissonance is a father's only good. And then you have this father who's your father who's good, supposed to be good, and yet the father's abusive. And so the cognitive dissonance is how can they be abusive if they're Father, because fathers aren't abusive and abusives aren't, you know, that kind. It creates this kind of, this doesn't make any sense. And the idea of calling Jesus God created this kind of dissonance. How can human be God? God be human, right? This is where Gnosticism pops up in the early church. It was a way to explain it. Not a good way, but it was a way. An oversimplified way of addressing this, and there's no way to approach it except that way on a Sunday morning, right? Um, Gnosticism is basically the concept of dualism. That there are two realms, the spiritual and the physical. This Gnostic dualism in it, the spiritual is the holy realm, and the physical is less than that. The physical is the profane or even evil realm in some way. Now, Christianity holds that there is there are two realms, the seen and the unseen, uh, but they, that it all belongs to God, right? And that God inhabits them both. So it's not one's less than or, or more evil. It's there, God inhabits both. That's why you maybe have heard the terms when it describes God, that God is both imminent and transcendent. That theological term, those two theological terms, mean God is in the physical creation, and yet he's outside of the physical creation. Um, but the seeds of Gnosticism really come from an old philosopher named Socrates, and uh, through the pen of Plato, the claim was that there is an eternal realm where the true exists. True forms exist. The physical world, though, is the world of shadows for Socrates. It's not real. It's pale. It, it's like, like, if you can see, there's a shadow from, from the lights on the stage. See, I can't get it up high enough, but some of you might be able to see it. There's a shadow of my hand. That shadow is not my hand. My hand is real. The shadow is a shadow of my hand. It's not really real. What, what Plato is saying, Socrates is saying, or we'll call it just, we'll just conflate it into Plato. What he's saying is that the spiritual realm is the real, is the form, is the hand. And the physical world is simply shadow. It's not real. Okay. So the, they use this great analogy of the cave, uh, is what Socrates used. And in the analogy of the cave, he talks about these people that are bound, which is representative of all of us, are bound, tied down, our faces are locked, we can't look, turn our heads, we're just bound, and we're looking at a blank wall inside the cave. Behind us is a fire, and also the entrance to the cave. And what's happening when we experience life is that there are these puppeteers behind us 
that are bringing these objects, which are really copies of what's out there beyond the cave, whether they're like, like uh, uh, trees or animals or stars or human beings, whatever we think we see, it's not real. It's just a, a shadow of what's really out there in the real place. And the prisoners of the cave, all they're looking at are copies, right? They're not really looking at the real. So for Socrates, we are all prisoners in the cave of physicality. And the physical existence isn't real existence. It's just the world of shadows. And we should be very dubious about what we see and about what we feel because physicality is really a bondage. And that what we must do is try to break free in order to see the spiritual, with spiritualize the other realm, the spirit realm, the realm of the real. So in this kind of dualism that pervaded the ancient world, physicality was sort of evil and spirituality was good. Now, this dualism spills into the church, right? Now, it didn't always have a negative. In some ways, it was good. But you see it in texts like Hebrews 9. Watch. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also for an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room. There were lampstands and tables and consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, of the covenant above the ark with a cherubim of glory overshadowing the atonement cover but we cannot discuss these things in detail now thank you <clears throat> when everything had been arranged like this the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry but only the high priest entered the inner room and that once a year and never without blood which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people which he had committed in ignorance why is he bringing this up because now watch what he says a couple verses later it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things, talking about the earthly things, for copies, to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves needed better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter the man-made sanctuary, which is only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. So understand this whole notion of this dualism. The spirit is real and this is just copies of it pervades Christian thought, right? This is from Socrates. Okay, now, but Socrates, even though his analogy is helpful, where it wasn't helpful was it carried the view that physicality was evil and compared to the eternal, right? Why is that problematic? Because Genesis 1 says God saw all that he had made and it was very, what? Good. See, the claim of Christians and Jews was that God made creation, that creation is good. That physicality is good. Physicality and creation, those are not evil. That, that is not evil. Those, though, who didn't agree that were Christians, that physicality was good, these guys and gals were the Gnostics, and there were lots of them in the early church. And they had a crisis because they thought physicality was evil, and now we're getting to the point of the creed. They had a crisis over the issue of God becoming physical. That God became flesh in Jesus. They had a problem with that. So their claim was Jesus came into the world, but he really wasn't physical. 
that he was here, but he was a kind of aberration or ghost-like or angel-like. He just looked physical. He couldn't have been a physical human because human bodies are evil. They held that the spirit part of the human is all that is good in the human being, that the physical part is always evil. That's why we have these tendencies of evil because of the physical body. That's why, in other words, we're trapped. The spirit is trapped in physical bodies and that Jesus came to untrap us from this evil physicality. Just look at the body, they would say. When the spirit leaves the body, when a person dies and the spirit leaves the body, what happens to the body? Stinks, starts to decay, one or two days, it's untenable. Why? The body's evil. Only the spirit is good. There is no way Jesus, the one who came from the eternal, could have ever been chained to a physical body. Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. No way. This is the why behind texts like 1 John that you probably read and thought, what? Listen to it. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. This was a huge issue in the first hundred years of the Christian church. The one prominent chief proponent of this was a guy named Marcion, late first, early second century. The path of his logic was since that all physicality is evil, then creation itself is evil. And his reasoning was when he read Genesis, that the God that created the heavens and the earth, he determined could not have been the God that Jesus Christ revealed. But it was the God of the Jews. And this God was not the true God, the one that Jesus revealed. This God of the Jews was a demiurge, in other words, a lesser God, and, and that Jesus basically is pushing away from. And for Marcion and the Gnostics, the demiurge, the Jewish God, was not a good God with holy followers. In fact, that's why when they read the Old Testament, they see Abraham, who's a follower of the false demiurge God of the Jews, lied about his wife to save his own skin, and yet he's called the father of the Jewish faith. Why? Obviously, he's an evil God. Or this God asked Abraham to kill his own son. This God directed the Jewish nation to commit atrocities like genocide. The God of the Father, uh, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ would never have done that. This is their reasoning. The Jews had horrible kings like King David, who was both an adulterer and a murderer. They felt like this was not the God who Jesus revealed, the God who so loved the world, the God who gives and forgives, the God who is spirit, only spirit, and detests flesh, detests physicality. On this view, the Old Testament was considered the scripture of a false God, and the Jews were considered lost followers of that evil God. And get this, in the second century, these Gnostics almost took over the church. But the most scholarly church fathers stood up and screamed, 
No way, Jose. They affirm the Christian story as a continuation of the Jewish story. They claim that creation was good. They knew that God was seen most clearly in Christ and that there were unanswered questions about the Old Testament. They understood that. But Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And the creed had many functions, but one of the main functions was to combat Gnosticism. The church doubled down on the claim that Christ is God who appeared in the flesh. He embraced physicality because God created physicality as good. So the creed claims that Jesus Christ was born of humanity. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He came into the world through a woman in time at a certain place, and he suffered. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Spirits can't suffer. Spirits can't die. He descended to that. Why is this important? Because Gnosticism, if Gnosticism is true, then Christ's passion was an illusion. On the third day, he rose again. The focus of the physical resurrection was more about combating Gnosticism. That Jesus actually rose physically, that he will forever embrace physicality. The thing that the Gnostics said we were being delivered from. And the claim is that physicality is good. Later, the creed speaks of resurrection of humanity. We'll see it later. It's a physical resurrection. Why is that so important? Because we don't get delivered from our bodies. We get to eat in eternity. That's what I'm talking about right there. (laughs) And you don't have to count your points. We don't get delivered from flesh. We will eternally live with redeemed flesh. Again, physicality, creation is good. Now, you may not see the relevance of all of this, but forms of Gnosticism still exist. You know one way? Some of us want our faith to just be in our minds and in our hearts. So we never have to do much with it. We don't have many practices because that's just religion and we have relationship. That little phrase is so Gnostic because it doesn't need anything physical. I remember going to college, back to college in uh, early 2000. And one of my professors uh, looked at me and he said, you know the problem with you Protestants? I said, no, what? I said, I know their problems. <laughs> what? He said, you don't have any religion. He told me that. I thought, well, of course not. We have a relationship. What I didn't understand was, I, it's like your marriage. You know, you could, you could, your husband or wife could tell, you know, we're married. and just never show up at home at night. Or not share any funds. Or just disappear for a month at a time. I mean, you know, you wouldn't say, you would say, what are you doing? Well, we're married. It's a thing of the heart. No, yeah, no. It's the thing of the heart and the thing of the practice, right? I go to church. Why? Because I'll go to hell if I don't know, but because I believe. If you don't have any physicality to your faith, it's just this Gnostic kind of wow, wow, 
You're just woo-woo. You're just woo-woo. Thinking of faith mostly of ideas instead of practices is Gnostic. Thinking that this world is just full of the demonic and that God needs to jump in and do a drive-by miracle from this from that other dimension to this one is Gnostic. God is present in the world always, at all time, in all things. It's true, things can be changed in prayer, but not because God comes. God is always here and in all things, in your victories and in your suffering. Not that he's causing the suffering. He's just with you in it. Claiming the Eucharist is a memory tool and that nothing really happens physically, really, to the host or to the wine is Gnostic. So what does happen? I have no idea. But something does. Just something ontologically, just like when a couple comes up who was in love and their intention is married and they're kind of married, but when they come up and they make their vows and when they leave, we all see them as married. What happened? I don't know. Something happened. And it will change the way they live. That's non-Gnostic. You know why? Many don't like things like bowing or kneeling or raising their hands or doing the sign of the cross or any of that kind of stuff or using art or symbol in worship. Gnosticism. We don't want to, we don't want to incarnate our faith. We want to keep it. Okay, I'll stop. I'm getting on the border of mean here. You know what I'm saying? You know, I can always tell. So I always can tell. I'm, 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 I, sometimes I'm an, I have the anointing, and then it's just so close it becomes the annoying. You know, it's just a couple of letters. And I feel it, and I do it, and I feel bad about it, but I do it anyway because I'm naughty. I'm naughty. <laughs> All right, so I got to stop. So, so, so much to say about this section of the creed, and so little time to say it. Right. So let me hit a couple hanging dip thongs, and, we'll, and then we'll hit the Holy Spirit next week. Um, uh, it, it, born of the Virgin Mary. Let me just say a couple things about the Virgin Mary. Her title in Greek is Theotokos. It means the Mother of God, or really more literally, the God Bearer. She bears God into the world. Some ask, do do we have to believe that in the Virgin Birth in order to go to heaven? I have no idea. I mean, I will say that most of the folks who push back on the virgin birth claim to do so because it doesn't seem scientifically reasonable. But my, you know, my comeback is, really? I mean, if God created the universe, why would God lack the capacity to do a virgin birth? But, you know, I'm, I, if you're stuck on this, just don't think about it much. <laughs> just keep coming to the table and saying yes to Jesus. And I'm sure you and he will work it out eventually. <laughs> but if you don't, I mean, I'm cool with it, you know. Praise the Lord. <laughs> the other thing about Mary is Mary's gotten a pretty bad rap from Protestants. Let's just be honest, right? When Mary says yes to God and God lights upon her heart and her life and her physicality, Mary says in Luke 1, my soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. We have to add parenthetically, unless they're Protestants. 
We need to listen to what Jesus told John when he was by the cross. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing by, I think all of us want to be loved. He said to his mother, dear woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Does Mary have any place in your home? You should respect your mother. Say, what does that mean? More questions. The Greek continues. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, a historical person in an exact time in a particular place. This is real. This is not an idea. This is not a realm of the forms. It's real. He was crucified, died, and was buried. You can pilgrimage to Israel and see exactly the physical place where this happened. And then he descended to the dead. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus, it says in the New Testament, preached to those who had died before. Wow. All those that were killed in the genocides or lived in other cultures outside of the Jewish story, he preached to them. First Peter says it this way, for Christ died for the sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And he was put to death in the body and made alive by the spirit. Through him also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, the people that had died that were in prison, somewhere, somewhere else who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. So all those people died in the flood and other people while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through the water, but there was all these people that had died. And here Jesus is, as he descended to the dead, preaching to those people. And then Peter expands in chapter 4, verse 6, for this reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. This is in the New Testament, right? So that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. What does that mean? I don't know. But it does beg the question, is there hope on the other side of death for those who did not connect with God here? Is there? If these kind of questions make you mad, I'm sorry, it, but it does help to remember Paul's words, we see through a glass darkly. And some of us like to put a very fine point on everything we think is true or going to happen. And I would simply suggest to you is you are only partially omniscient. Then it goes on the third day, he rose again. First Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared after the resurrection to Peter and to the 12. And then after that, he appeared to, appeared, appeared to more than 500 of his brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died. Though, then he appeared to James and to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Jesus rose from the dead and he started showing up with people. Just a couple of quick things on this. One is, Oftentimes, they freaked out when Jesus appeared to them. <laughs> Jesus scared them a little. I really like that. That means they didn't expect to see him, and that means Jesus doesn't mind scaring you. <laughs> Secondly, Jesus appears to his disciples in altered forms. He was a gardener one time, a fellow pilgrim another time. One time, pilgrim, not a, what do I call it? Pilgrim. Uh, uh, he was a cook on the shore. Um, has he appeared to you in ways you haven't noticed? 
And then lastly about that, they don't make him appear through prayer or ritual. He just appears whenever and wherever he wanted to appear. We're not in control of this. Manifestations of God. We're just open to it. And then it says, he descended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. What's the point? Jesus is still alive <laughs> and has an active ministry, right? Hebrews 7 says, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. And you, me, because he lives to intercede for us. His ministry continues. And then lastly, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is coming back. I don't think he's coming back this year. I mean, he could. I actually don't think he's going to come back for millions of years. Say, why would you say that? I'm not going to tell you why. We can have a coffee with and maybe talk about why. (laughs) But here's what it says, 2 Timothy. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I may not think he's coming for millions of years, but I long for his appearing. Sometimes it's not on my radar. How about you? Do you ever long for his appearing? This is actually the goal of Advent to cultivate a longing for his appearing. We leap into that season at the beginning of the Christian New Year, which isn't for us January 1st, by the way. It's December 1st. And we start talking about his appearing. So next week, we pick up on the creed's assertion that we believe in the Holy Spirit, and it will be time for some ghost stories. Let's stand.